think one of the most extraordinary things that I get to do after I read someone's memoir is to interview them. Because the story continues. You read the book and it's one portion of someone's life. And by the time you get to interview them, they've been living forward. This discussion with Matt Bays is such a lovely reminder that we go through hard things and we come out the other side. It was really important that we didn't only stay in the heavy and the sad and the hard and the trauma. That's something that Matt said a couple of times to me and you can hear it. You know, we cry, but we also, we also laugh in this episode. Matt lost a lot. He lost a love. He lost a sister and he had an idea of how he wanted to heal from that. And his book and his story is how he actually healed from that. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. I really hope you go look him up, get his book and really get a chance to enjoy Matt Bays. Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I am Megan Reardon Jarvis and I am beyond delighted. I feel like I won the lottery to be sitting here with Matt Bays. Matt Bays is an extraordinary author who I've sort of been stalking and following off of other friends' pages for a while now. So he doesn't know he's famous in my living room, but he really is. And I have had the delight of reading his most recent book, Leather and Lace, A Gay Man Lost Love and a Road Trip with His Dead Sister. He sent me the the audio version, which everyone should get because it includes some live music from our very talented Matt Bass. And you should also get the hard copy because, which is what I had to do because the writing in the book is so gorgeous. It needs to be underlined, outlined, hung up on your wall. And I'm going to get him to do a little bit of reading from it. Matt Bass, thank you so much for being here. Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure. Matt and I had a conversation yesterday that could have gone on for like an hour and a half. So we're going to do- We should have recorded it. We should have recorded that. It was ridiculous. All the lost nuggets. We're going to do our best to have some sort of thread and discussion that makes any sense and not just feel like we're on a a picnic finally together. But Matt, I I really wanted to have you on the podcast. Your, Your book, Leather and Lace, is one that really lends itself to the discussion that we have on here about how do people manage loss. But as I said to you in our call yesterday, I mean, you and I could talk every week for a couple of months because you have a lot of compound trauma that you have navigated through and share with the the readers um, and people who know you both the sort of good, bad and ugly. So I would love for you to just sort of pick up the thread of, you know, this podcast is about helping people feel hopeful about Mm -hmm. the possibility of learning to grow in grief and loss. So anywhere you want to pick up your story, you're the author of another gorgeous book, God in the Ruins, which I've read excerpts of and is on its way to me from the booksellers. But anywhere you want to start in terms of talking to our listeners about your story, we would would be so grateful to hear. Um, I guess I'll start, you know, that I, I had been through so much in my life. And for me, processing pain was something that I just, I had to do because life wasn't working and everything was coming out sideways of 
of difficulties that I'd faced, traumas I had experienced. Well, began, began in my late 20s. I call 28 year 28, the year of reckoning, you know, and, and then into my 30s, figuring out that I didn't have tools, you know, to deal with some of these things. But by the time I got to um, beginning to write Leather and Lace, because this book started as something else, I was just going to process the pain of, you know, losing my sister and what that looks like and living in new space, because you prepare sometimes for somebody to die, but you don't always prepare for the life without them. Oh, is that things? Yeah. Ooh, and I thought I, I, I need like a second. I'm having a Brene Brown moment. because She always does this, but that sentence just like hit me all the way down to my toes with, you know, you prepare sometimes for people to die, but you do not prepare for the life without them. That is, yeah. that is, and I think that's the where truth. the true grief comes in where you're like, holy shit, what am, what am I going to do now? You know, who am I now? And how come I can't call this person that is in my favorites list, you know, which I still, I mean, it's been since 2016, October 31st that Trina passed. And I mean, she's in my favorites list and she always will be. I, I thought that I had gathered the tools over, I mean, nearly two decades, you know, to, so I, I didn't expect that there would be any situation that I couldn't get through and yeah, it might be hard, but I've got all the damn tools. I'll be fine. You know, and what ended up happening was I got into my first same-sex relationship after my divorce and it was a beautiful relationship in so, so many ways. Lasted two and a half years, broke up at the beginning of the pandemic. And this is what I was not prepared for is the grief over losing that first true love. And that's not to say that I didn't love my wife because I did, but it's a whole different experience when you are loving somebody as your authentic self. And so it was figuring out who I was apart from that relationship and the grief spiral that it took me on. I hadn't accounted for, and I did not know how to navigate. I knew what I had to do, you know, but I just didn't know how unraveled I would be by this. And that was shocking. So yeah, I had already planned to write a book, but the book took an entirely different path that I wasn't expecting. And that as a writer was complicated because every time I sat down, I didn't know what was coming out next. I want to ask you to just fill in for people who are listening, who maybe don't know your story about the, the development for you as a person in terms of your sexuality. So starting married to a woman and just sort of give us that history, but also I'll just say it because I have a a writer's workshop that I know some of my writers are listening there. We talk a lot about writing for process and writing for product that a lot of what we're doing in the beginning with writing is taking those feelings that really reside deep down in our body and inviting our cognition to fuse back with them. In trauma, there's often a disconnect, but we're in in writing, we use the language center of our brain to bring those two things back together to create a story that I can bear to help me yeah. with words that I can carry. And, you know, there are many people who I've worked with who will say, I can't write this down. I have one chapter left in my memoir and I haven't been able to write it yet. So yeah. who knows, like my memoirs do October 16th, but we'll see if I can get those words out or if it's just going to go to first draft with that chapter hanging. 
Yeah. Well, there, there is something that I've said is I'm a, I'm a happy-go-lucky person. Most of the time I wake up and I'm happy and I just don't live life real hard. So I think it's, for me, I've been kind of surprised that that I had so many people meet me that have said, oh my God, I thought you would just be more of a depressed, quiet person. And I'm not, I'm like, hey, you know, <laughs> but, but there, there is this part of me, maybe the artist part or whatever that, that writing is okay. Often I say, I don't really know what I'm feeling until I write it down. You know, it is absolutely a way for me to process you know, and how that ties in with the product, I think is both and just because the people, pain is universal. And if we can write in a way that is inclusive of others, then people find themselves in our stories. We all do. If we're, if we're storytellers, if we're story hearers, you know, then that's what happens. And that's why I tend to read people and listen to speakers. The people I engage with most are the storytellers. There's this, gorgeous, there's this gorgeous line from C.S. Lewis that I love and have put in lots of places that says we read to feel known. And, yeah. and that's essentially, you know, the other side of the coin of what you're describing, which is yeah. we write to know ourselves, which is totally true. And you and I had a part of this conversation yesterday in our sort of introductory phone call about how people process through feelings differently, that there are people who do really well sitting with themselves, going deep down inside, just need time and space, and they will come to understand each other. I am not one of those people. Okay. My entire book, my entire experience with grief is held by my best friend, Maya, and my husband. Because when I'm stuck, I will ask, usually I'm sitting on my porch swing and I'll say, I need to, I need to chew something through with you. And they don't say anything genius or brilliant. None of us, the three of us are geniuses, but it's through the processing out of talking about the feelings that I just get to a finer, sharper point. And I think that writing is another one of those formats where the words, when they land and they're true and they're right, you don't need to write them anymore. And it becomes the narrative and it becomes the story. And I just, I'm going to ask you to read in a minute, but there, there are so many phrases in there in your book that feel like, Oh my God, that is the truth. Like he's writing. Good. The truth. Yeah. Good. I love that part of writing so much. I've done music my whole life and I'm a, I'm a decent musician and yeah, was a worship, worship leader forever, but, but the, the process of writing for me is like goody, 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 like makes me get excited to be able to take words and write them in a way that just like stops you because I've had so many of those moments in writing that I still remember the exact phrase somebody said, you know, that just like mowed me down. And so I love to be able to do that because there's plenty of times when I'm writing myself and I'll write something and it feels like it, and this can sound so stupid and egotistical, but it feels like it came from someplace else. Like I'm not equipped for whatever beautiful thing just happened. But if we're spiritual people, I think we know that often we're just a channel, you know? Yeah. 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 I, I do believe that. And I think that when, when writers, you and I were just talking about getting up early or when you, you know, there's sort of like liminal time for me 
at zero dark 30 in the morning where I feel like I'm in that river, not just the, you know, not just being a channel, but sort of, you know, in wet in the water. And then I'll look back at some of that stuff and not really remember writing it because I, whether it's me, whether it's biological and I have access to different elements in my brain, I'm happy with that way of organizing that. Or if it's, you know, that's where God is awake in the morning and you're tapped into divinity. I don't care. Either way, the language has a different feeling to it. Do, do me a favor and, t- and for, again, for folks who have not yet purchased, but are about to, this gorgeous book of yours, back us into it so that people understand like the subtitle, gay man, lost love yeah. and a road trip with his dead sister. Just help people understand what was this road trip and what you were carrying with you on the road trip. Okay. I want you to notice what's about to happen because I'm about to do exactly what you asked me to do. And I am not going to go on any rabbit trails. (laughs) My ADD is like fully in check right now and on guard. So here's what it was for me. Grew up in an evangelical home, super, super conservative didn't really know know that there was a choice between, like in the book, I say it was never a choice between gay and straight. It was always a choice between straight and hell, you know, so being gay wasn't even an option. That's the section I'm going to get you to read, Matt. Keep going. Oh, I have to be quiet. Okay. <laughs> just so, give you a spoiler, but we'll be back for those beautiful words. Keep going. So I knew what I knew early on that there was attraction toward men, boys when I was young and But I had tied that so closely to my abuse, my my sexual abuse, because I think it's partly in part what people told me, but also it felt like a loophole that I really, really needed in order to prove that I really wasn't gay. This just happened. And today I always say, what if it was because of the abuse? Who the fuck cares? I don't. This is where I am right now. And so whatever. You know, but anyway, so my brother died when he was 23, I was 21. So these are just some of the traumas. And I got married shortly after that to a a wonderful woman. We were married for 23 years and had two kids. And over the course of those years, I really had to unplug that this part of myself, my sexuality from the circuit board of my life, because I couldn't hold that you know, and still go on in this life. And I was still in this evangelical, I was leading worship at these mega churches. It was a lot, you know, and so I'm on stage, everybody knows me and always in the back of my head, I thought, what if, what if, if I ever came out, I just lose everything. And I don't know if I want to do that. Plus I don't want a broken home for my family, blah, blah, blah. Okay. My sister, because we grew up under the same roof, she was six and a half years older than me. And when you weather the storm of trauma, which was a chaotic childhood, abuse of every kind, all of that kind of stuff, you, you kind of, with your siblings, you can end up being almost like old war vets, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a different kind of relationship. So my sister and I never fought. We were never petty with each other. Like I see in a lot of sibling relationships, it was fine and great. And sometimes I almost wish I had had that, you know, but mm-hmm. we didn't, we were very, very close. And I would say she was my person and it didn't mean we talked deep all the time or we right. relived old wounds or whatever. It was just, a, it was a closeness that we had. And so when she got breast cancer, I didn't know how long it would last. And she did all the things and it came back after her five-year marker and like wildfire <clears throat> spread throughout her body. 
And we knew it was only a matter of time then. So she died on Halloween day of, of 2016, coming up on five years now. And when I lost her, that was a huge turning point for me and the impetus, because I say that she gave me the courage yeah. to realize life is short. And I actually, I get to do this if I choose, I don't have to, but I get to do this if I want to. And I needed to, because I was just a, becoming more and more a shell of a person as I got open and everybody on the interwebs all thought I was this authentic, vulnerable, you know, writer. Cause my first book was already out. And I think there was a huge piece of that, but God, there was that missing piece that I just, I didn't know what I didn't know. And I didn't know that coming out would reopen me and align me with my spirit in such a way that I was able to not do more amazing things, but to be more at peace with myself and not to be walking around with this mask on and living somebody else's life that was not me. In trauma therapy, one of the things that we tell young therapists is that when people come in, when they're, when they call you and they come in, they are never more malleable, willing to change than that day because they're desperately miserable. That's why you call a therapist. Most people don't call us unless there's something really that really deeply needs to change. And in my own experience, because I love the way that you said, like, listen, I had all the tools. I'd done all the work. I knew, you know, whatever I, whatever I had to face would be fine. And people who listen to me know, I mean, literally I teach all the things to all the people about what to do when you have trauma or PTSD. I do all the treatments. I was really almost like humbled, but like more like bemused, like what knowing all the things doesn't inoculate you from needing to make all that kind of vulnerable, terrifying change. The part that I think is the part that like, I'm going to say it and it won't matter because you can't know it till you know it is that there is this kind of crazy vulnerability, which to me showed up as I don't give any more fucks. Yeah. Right? Like I can't even still now, my mom died two years ago. I've been without most of my PTSD symptoms for at least a year. They flash up every once in a while, but I cannot drive my bus to places I don't want to go. I cannot show up for people that I don't 100% care about. I can't keep people close who can't dive to the deepest level of my oceans. And so those things are sort of awful as they're happening in mine. I had a lot of anger for mine. Mine was just like anger and frustration. I'm not angry anymore. I never was really an angry person. I am, I think also like you, I wake up kind of happy every day. And I was really like, wow. That's how this happens. That's how people make change. That's how we have to face these things. So when we look at something like my sister dying of cancer, a Hollywood version of that story is then that man is so inspired, cue the swelling music in the background to live his life authentically and real. But what I know is there may have been swelling music in the background, but there was also terror and a fair amount of confusion and yeah 
Right. Well, because then you have to go on the trip. So the difference is yeah. like you can have all the knowledge and do all the research and here's the plan for the trip and talk to everyone about all of it. This is what it's going to be. Look at all the research I did, blah, blah, blah. But then there is a day where you actually have to get in the car or get on the plane and go on the trip. And that is where you may not be prepared. So as an ENFP, you're, you're bad at that just of like, looking into the future and seeing, you know, I mean, I had friends that were like, you were in the deepest grief of your life and you were getting in a car by yourself and going out on the road for six weeks alone. You know, I never even thought about that until I was like two days in and was like, I just am so, I miss everybody. I mean, I was like, please let me go home. Like, this is awful. What was I thinking? You and I, so, so for those who are listening, there is like a metaphorical and an actual physical journey. Matt's book is about literally getting in his car and, you know, driving and connecting with people and seeing places <laughs> like the brutal chapter about the Grand Canyon. But there, but there is also this metaphorical journey of like, what is the process of sort of changing how you live and changing your life? And one of the conversations we had yesterday has to do with this notion. And I actually, cause I'm a complete nerd. I went and did a whole, like, where did this come from? This idea that we're supposed to, you know, be on our own and find ourselves. And yeah. what I can tell you is the ethos that I sort of trace back took me to the eighties. I didn't find a specific like, Oh, this is Oprah's problem. She said this, you know, she did this to us, but there is this sort of like ethos that begins to sort of creep out late seventies, early eighties of particularly when people are in relationships and there are breakups that you're meant to like go and find yourself like yeah. throw. And it turns out, I mean, it turns out actually that's just like flat the fuck out wrong. There's no science behind that. That was like, whoever started that idea is just an idea. Now for introverts, for people who get their energy by going inward, who know everything about their lives by pulling away and checking inside, which by the way, I always wished I was one of those. My younger brother seemed to have been born knowing everything he needed to know about himself. And I'd be like, what do you think this, that, what do you think? I bounce myself off of other people to understand myself better. Yeah, And that we have neuroscience from this guy named Stephen Porges about polyvagal theory that teaches us that that's actually how people know who they are starting all the way back down from babies. When you're held in your mother's arms and the mother smiles at the baby and the baby smiles back, you are literally transferring the sense of security in your body to the baby through a smile because there's all these neurons that when you smile, it's hard, It's actually very difficult. There's a thing called smile therapy. It's very difficult to feel bad when you are smiling because of the way that the neurons fire in our brain. So this notion that somewhere the idea gets in your head that you need to like go off, you know, go kill the white whale or whatever it is, you yeah. know, be on your own was probably more an, a red light flashing indicator of how much pain you were in. Because yeah. isolation is one of those things that we look for, you know, are you isolating yourself Yeah. and, you know, and how is that impacting yeah. your kind of mental health? Right. It did give me a chance to, to find alone time because I, I, as an extrovert, I can just fill my life up with people constantly. So writing is that alone time. And the trip was, I mean, it was 
it was hard. Everybody was so excited. And then I was getting Facebook messages from people like, oh my God, this is so exciting. Are you having so much fun? I wish I could go out on the road like that for six weeks. It'd be so wonderful. And meanwhile, I am like caving. And then people are like, where are you? You know, is everything okay? I hope you're enjoying your trip, that kind of stuff. And I was like, I can't even go on social media. Like all I would say is, it was like standing at the Grand Canyon thinking, somebody throw me in that hole, please, you know, put me out of my misery. I hate it. I hate everybody. I hate everything. I hate myself, you know, and I'm supposed to go to San Diego now and be gone for three more weeks doing this. And I am just going to come back a feral crazy man, you know, yikes. It was a, it was a defining moment in my life that while I wouldn't recommend, I'm glad it happened you know, and, and it makes for, it makes for good writing because it really did give me a chance to check inside, see what was going on and then write through that process and come out the other side where I was one year ago today Mm -hmm. was at the grand Canyon. And I was turning my ass around on this day and heading home because of one question is this by my friend, Laura Perry is this hard for you or bad for you? And I had to sit with that question for about 12 hours because she said, if it's bad for you, then it's, it's bad for you. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's hard for you and something you need to process through, okay, what, where is this? But I knew that it was at that point, that was just a moment for me, a sort of line in the sand moment where I thought this is, bad for me. I need to like hit the eject button and get out of here because I'm, I'm not in good space. And, and the, the trouble with trauma survivors is our thermostats are broken. Yeah, that's you know? exactly And right. so you tend to let yourself boil all the way up, you know, because it's not abuse, yeah. you know, or it's not getting your head bashed in. It's something else. And so you think you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. But it's one of the emotionally, one of the sickest moments of my whole life. And I had dealt with the abuse, my brother dying, my sister dying. That was one of the moments where I was like, I, I have to get out of here. Like I am, I'm really not well. What's gorgeous. And it's true throughout your whole story is that, you know, you have these bellwether folks like Laura, who's going to be a guest on the podcast, by the way. Um, also an incredibly gorgeous writer who yeah. her words drive me crazy. And she's in the foreword of your book, Yeah, but, but you do have these folks who see you even when you can't see yourself. And yeah. I think that's another element of when people talk about trauma healing and truly surviving trauma, trauma, there are often people who feel like lighthouses or buoys. And Laura asks you this question, which every time you said it, you say it, it just like, you know, gives me the chills because that's exactly right. That people who have been through untenable things don't always understand that where we're at is a no, where we're at is too hot. This is a turnaround spot that sometimes you need folks who haven't lived the kind of, you know, heat in the kitchen that you have to say, we got to open some windows and doors and get away from this. What it, what it made me think of, and honest to God, I think, (laughs) I think you quote this artist in your book, but there's a song that I'm obsessed with, which is called leave the light on by Maggie Rogers. You quote her in your book, I think, right? I don't um, think so, but I, I love that song. Yeah. <clears throat> she says in the, in the story 
of the song, she is talking about, I, I imagine like getting a, a record deal or something good is happening in her life. And people are saying you should be so happy now. And the song is about this really profound pain. And I think it, the clients that I work with, those are some of the worst moments, right? Which is like, they have something going on in their life that requires applause or an accolade or a cheers or champagne or something. And that is not the way it feels to them. And so people keep coming, they keep connecting, they keep reaching out and getting it a hundred percent wrong. After my mom died and during COVID, we, my family and I, I think I told you this yesterday, we went out West. We, we took our kids, we went to 21 States and 28 national parks. And, and that sounds some kind of way to other parents who were stuck here. They're like, Oh my God, I wish I had done that. That sounds amazing. You're such brilliant and bright parents. And what I say every time was, oh, I, I was just running away. That was just a grief process that I dragged my family on. It happened to be great for them and really educational and they very good geography now, but I could not come back to my house and sit still in the feelings that I was feeling. Yeah, yeah. I needed that distraction. And it's really important to me every time someone says, oh, what a good thing you did to be like, yeah, no, I know it looks that way. We, we forget, you know, what, what we've been through. And so we just look at somebody else's life from the outside, you know, and not realize that for me, this, this road trip was, I mean, it was, it was just, it was overwhelming, you know, in every way. And it just, it, it just went on forever, you know? And, and so I redid my, my itinerary and changed some things up because I couldn't be alone anymore. So I went to see my friend, Brian in Detroit. I went out to see Laura in New Haven like I came back and saw my friends, Brian and Oscar, who show up in the book. I was only supposed to be with them a couple of days. And then I came back and spent like another five or six days with them because I just couldn't do it alone, you know? And so, yeah, I, I get that, that, you know, you can't match your outsides. What do they say? Something about yeah. that. You can't Insides measure your outsides. Outs yeah, yeah. You know what I'm talking Insides about. to other people's outsides. But I think also it's just a way you know, when you're in a lot of pain, it's very hard to express how you feel to others because you need that energy to heal. And when you're doing that or trying to do that and people mm. get it wrong, it's, it's a second level of pain, right? It's as it doubles down. And then what yeah. happens is, is it deepens the isolation. Well, I tried to tell you, you didn't get it. And now I'm going to pull back even further. There's a gorgeous element of alone out there, which can be really healthy, yeah. but it's very difficult. And I think, again, for trauma survivors to understand the difference between it is a chasm of alone and isolated and lonely, yeah. right? Like there's a trajectory and it sounds like you started in one place, maybe not really fully understanding how much grief you were carrying yeah. alone. And then, you know, yeah. you, the feelings are right there. They're right there with no distraction. And yeah. then you have to take this courageous like sort of, I would say life-saving turn to say, I'm not doing this. It's yeah. bad for me. Yeah. That was tough. That was tough on the ego. It was tough on the expectations of what I thought others were expecting of me and my AA, I'm an AA guy, by the way. And uh, my AA sponsor was like, you know, if, if you have to redo this, recalibrate based on what's good for you, 
you know, and I was like, well, I stupidly, you know, put this all over social media. This is what people are expecting. And he was like, who the fuck cares what people are expecting? And I already knew that lesson, but for some reason, when you're in this weakness, you're just, it's like you, you have to give yourself permission to do what it is that you need to do. And, you know, one guy had said to me one time, I chose myself because really what else is there? You know, he was talking about something else, but I think in those moments, that's exactly what you need to do is like, all right, everything needs to get really quiet and everything else needs to distill in my life so that I can see clearly to make this decision of what is best for me. And so that question, even when Laura asks, is this hard for you or bad for you? I knew the answer immediately because I'm sitting in the fucking Plaza Bonita Mexican restaurant uh, parking lot weeping just weeping. And I've just seen God's footprint in the earth, you know, of the Grand Canyon. And it did nothing for me. You know, it was like, okay, this is bad. Right. (laughs) I know there's something off if I'm not impacted by the Grand Canyon, which again, I think we do a lot of stuff. Like I, I, I think about the concept of you know, every great story is really the hero's journey, right? Which is for those who aren't writers, you know, you can think of like Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter or something, but generally it's like, there is a main character, something has to change. They go through something that they do not want. It is terrible. I forget who it says the most massive characters are seared with scars. Yeah. You know, and it's like, who wants to read a book? So I'm like thinking, I just want to write a happy book. I just want to to write a book. No one reads a happy book. But in the hero's journey, what happens is the hero tries for several chapters to not have to do whatever the thing is, right? And so my example that I always use was, you know, Lord of the Rings. Like in the beginning, he's like, no, no, no. I don't want to take the ring. Like, I don't want to do these things. And then in the hero's journey, there's a collection of people that come to help, right? Like there's Gandalf and the little hobbits and the wizards and all those people or Harry Potter's friends that come. He makes his friends when he gets to Hogwarts. And then there is this period of transformation and the transformation is not a linear loop. It's usually some failures, right? Some terrible things. Like I had an idea. This is the idea I had at some point. I had an idea that what would be good for me is taking this road trip. And that was an idea I had. And now I have tested that in reality. And the scientist in me says, hypothesis fail, turn around. And and what I heard. That is hard. It sounds so like, what's the big deal? We all fail. We fail forward there, you know, and I just, that, that idea of coming out on something so big, rearranging my whole life, taking a leave of absence from work, whatever the idea of failing was just not okay. It was, I just felt like not just like, yeah, that didn't work. It was like, this is who you are. You are a big fat fraud, 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 you know, and that stuff gets in your head. And when you're alone and isolated, everybody can tell you it's not, it's just failing as part of success, you know, or whatever. Yeah, fuck that. It, it doesn't feel like it. You well, know? But also what I think is in the nugget, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I think in the nugget that is missed again on the like magazine, like fail forward or failing as success is that I pinned all my beliefs on this thing. I bought a car. I packed my bag. I put it on social media. This was going to be the thing that helped me. And if I fail at this, 
I have to go figure out what is a thing that is going to help me. And that's what gets me stuck. I mean, I don't, I don't really have, I don't have the same presence in the world that you do. So people don't get invested in my ideas in the same way. But for me, it's like, shit, if this doesn't work, this is my best idea. What right. am I going to do? And, and, and it's not like I'll go, you don't think I'll go back and retool. It literally feels like if this doesn't work, this is the end. It is. And that's I, what I, almost, I, can, I almost can't even sit with that thought because I can feel it in my chest right now. That feeling of like, it's, 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 it's a form of despair and hopelessness. And I'm not that person where I think, oh my God this is, this is the end. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? And the truth is that is sort of a crossover point. I hate to say it's a good place, but I think it is where you are just, you want to talk about full fucking surrender. That is like where you just want to lay down in the dirt and be like, just make it go away or somebody give me an idea that is not mine and I will do it. I don't care what it is. I will do it because what I am doing and trying to make happen is not working and I can't do this anymore. Right. And that's when I said before, when people come into therapy, sometimes that's where we catch them and yeah. they are more willing to try something that they would never, yes. ever yeah. have tried. And I feel like my own experience, again, it's not, these are not ideas I didn't know. I hospitalize people regularly because they need next level of care. They need intense support and help. And that is what I mean. I don't mean you have failed at life and we're going to lock you away. I mean, you deserve, given the degree to your pain that you are experiencing right now, to have someone who can talk to you immediately at three in the morning when you wake yeah. up. I hope that we can get to a point in this podcast at some point where we kind of talk of what on the solution side of that, of of what that looks like. Cause what you're talking about there, this hospitalization and all the care, that was not something that was not the path that I took. There was another path that I took that did bring me out of that though. I didn't know that it was actually coming, you know, and, uh, segue Matt please pick up your book for me because I would love you to read for us because exactly what you're just describing which is everybody has to invent their rescuer themselves it doesn't matter whether you go to a hospital or go to yoga or join a religious cult like it doesn't matter to me or all of them or all all of those things what matters is is that we we understand that there is hope that things can feel different so if you can read for me on page 210 i i ticked off picking myself up i love this in the book deep in the book well i'm going to take us back if we have time but i just thought jesus this is what this book what this podcast is about started picking myself up off the floor and just read to the read to the little whatever we call that where am I uh, read to the slash? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's what they call them in the book biz. Slash. Thank you. Well, as you know, I'm, I'm new to the field. I yes. would call that a squiggle. <laughs> squiggle. Squiggle is so amateur, Megan. It's very, very amateur. Okay, I'm going to start up. Picking myself up off the floor hasn't been easy. This painful path was something I didn't know existed until it did. I didn't know about losing weight due to a broken heart. If you can imagine this skinny boy's frame being 14 pounds lighter, it was. 
Uh, I didn't know about not sleeping because heartbreak murmured all night long of love and loss. I'm not sure there is a direct path to getting over it, but the practical side of me kicked into high gear and I went after healing the only way I knew how. I put in the time. I dedicated hours each day to the healing process. I didn't want the heartbreak to last for years. And while it didn't feel like it at the time, I knew I would crawl out of this if I truly allowed myself to grieve. That said, I didn't make believe I was over it before I was over it. I also didn't flippantly turn my back on the pain, pretending it wasn't devastating because it was. At the time, it felt like everything. Here's what I did. This is all what I did. I acknowledged the heartache every day. It was kind of impossible not to. I met with a therapist every week. I prayed every hour. I listened. None of this is drama, Megan. This is all actual. I did all of this. I know. Yeah. I met with a therapist every week. I prayed every hour. I listened to Brene Brown while on long walks. I cried before work meetings, after work meetings, during work meetings. I told the story over and over until my friends might have considered putting our friendship in the goodwill pile. I exercised until my body gave out, but most importantly, I stood before my goddamned heart and stared at the ruin. I took in all the beautiful memories, shut my eyes and wept for the loss of something that one day I would be able to live without. I was so wrecked standing in that space and no one was more surprised by this than I was. But I was determined to move forward and eventually I did. Luke, my ex-boyfriend and I remain friends. I know of his struggles, his victories and he knows of mine. We found common ground ground that is not yet fully formed, but can still bear the weight of the place we've come to. I have great hope for him, and I have no doubt that he has the same for me, but our romantic relationship isn't coming back. We both know this. As Glennon Doyle has said of love, the annual blooms for just a season, and then winter arrives and takes it out for good, but it still enriched the soil for the next flower to bloom. In the same way, no love is wasted. Damn it, Matt Bates. How is a person supposed to get through reading that? Oh, those are the most beautiful words. I know you already know that. They totally make me weep. I have this, I have this vision of me back at my house, watering flowers and listening to Abraham Hicks. She is a life coach. It's very guru-ish, you know, no, it's very- it but I was desperate I, to try. I was trying all the new things and hers would either land for me, or I would just want to take my phone out of my pocket while listening and just throw it out in the road. Like, and I'm watering my flowers, but thinking all that she's saying is not going to do anything for me right now, but I just kept trying. I just kept trying. And I, it was, she is one source of and it was not the biggest source but all but that image just came to my mind where I distinctly remember watering my flowers and thinking I hate her I hate every person that has a word of wisdom I hate cliches and cross-stitched pillows oh. in bumper oh, yeah. faith I hate it all but I am willing to put that damn bumper sticker on my car if it will make me feel better like just make it go away. And so I put, I did put in the time 
you know, and looking back, I probably could have used a retreat where I went away for five days and sat around in a circle all day long, you know, and did the thing. But instead, what I did was it was it was an all day exercise, you know, of eating right and exercising and crying myself to sleep and watching Will and Grace because it would make me laugh and seeing my friends and podcasts and books and you know you name it therapy and life coach and all of it to try to get myself out and then it happened it happened well and you already had a, a period of time also being sober because the thing that i think about for a lot of people is all the dissociative stuff that we want to do chemical addictions, process addictions, just stuff that will take us out of that moment. For every reason, I love this chapter. It makes me cry. That section is going to make me cry now because I think, first of all, it's your personal story. So it, it brings us into the pain in this way that just, you know, is really overwhelming. Secondly, it, it just, it's, I went to a wedding once where between a man who was in the military and his, and his partner, and he said, his vows were, I love you. You know, we're going to be together forever. And her vows were, we spent $4,826 on phone calls. We spent, you know, 6,922 days apart. I mean, she just delineated and she was like, we earned this day. We earned this wedding day. We have mm -hmm. worked so hard for this yeah. day. And I've never forgotten. I've never forgotten the juxtaposition of their two views and her sort of triumphant. I'm not confused about what I'm doing. When I read your chapter, it's the answer to the question that I hear from people all the time, which is like, how am I ever going to feel better? And the answer is you will not believe how hard it is. You will not believe how hard you are going to have to work to grow a part of you that can carry the burden that you will carry. It won't feel so heavy for the rest of your life. Yeah. And, and it also feels to me like, you know, everyone has had the experience when they are grieving or changing or getting divorced, any sort of loss of a friend who they thought they're in the, they're in the trenches with me saying some bullshit sentence, like, shouldn't you be over this by now? Yeah. I don't know. It just seems like you've taken it really hard. I don't know. It seems like you're just focusing too much yeah. on it. Yeah. And, but the other you know, option I, was shutting myself down. Right. I was going to have to, I would have had to shut myself down and I was too far down the healing path. Not just this personal, but just my right. whole life that, that, that no longer was a viable option. I couldn't do that. Which, which is one of the beautiful things about growth, right? Which is like when you grow into the understanding that in order to be authentic, you can't obscure yourself. You're unwilling to ever do that again. I say that to people a lot about relationships when they find someone really kind, who they love, who treats them well, who they can't stay with forever. What I say is maybe the legacy is that you will always know you deserve kindness and to be treated well, you know, that those are, if we're, if we're moving forward into healing, that's, that's the hope. But I just think that chapter really demonstrates, you know, it is exactly this hard. We're yeah. not weak people who are, you know, just had nothing better to do. So I've now turned a platform into, you know, well, I got a book out of it. Like this is what it is. It's, yeah. it's an everyday and, yeah. and it 
And even when you think you begin to know, it changes and shifts. And yeah. you know. well, now what I know, Megan, is I know what this is now, what it what it's like to go through this thing, kind of thing. I didn't know before. And as a two on the Enneagram, who's a helper, you know, it's like, well, Laura talks about when you take your pain and put work boots on it and send it out into the world, which I, I know she writes shit so that cool. makes me crazy. But that's, that's what it's all about for me is how can I help some other fellow traveler who is standing before me empty handed and weeping and saying nothing will ever be the same again. And I can, from a true place say, I know it doesn't feel like it will, uh, it, it can, there, there is hope and life will be good again because it's, I'm proof positive that even in a year, I would have never thought that I could be standing in the space that I'm in now. I thought tr tragic tragedy and this relationship that I'd lost that felt like soulmate love and was in many yes, ways, absolutely. never, ever, ever be replaced, could never be done again. And that's what I didn't know is that we, we can actually move on. It might be a lot of hard work, you know, but it is it's possible and has come true for me. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to turn this into a Disney story, but would you be willing to let people know where you are in your life now? Because you are not at the Grand Canyon. Again, spoiler alert, life is not a Disney novel, but I if would I love- If I ever go back to the Grand Canyon, you bet your ass I'm going to be holding somebody's hand because I am not going back there alone again. No, no. No, the scene of it all. But yeah, just, I mean, again, part of, part of what is really beautiful about that chat, about that section in your chapter is we don't have to work all, that hard all the time, right? The same way no. that like, you're not young and beautiful your whole life or that you don't feel financially stable your whole life. We go through these periods where we have to hustle for different things. Yeah. Um, and when we're grieving, you got to grieve. And yeah. I mean, you got to do it and then you won't do it in the same way for the rest of your life. Will, will I always be concerned about money? Sure, I should be. That's a, what a responsible person does. Will I always carry my grief and be touched by it? Sure. Otherwise I'd be not denying the love that existed there. I don't think we're spoiling anything by letting folks know that there is some light and hope at the end of the tunnel. Will you, will you just let the listeners know what's going on in your life right now and what sort of fun life events you have celebrated recently? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, at back in November, I, I met somebody on Tinder and, and, you know, it was, it was a person a lot like me. He'd been married for 23 years. He had two kids and thank God he was gay too. So <laughs> we, um, doubt. I was really happy to find that out anyway. And uh, Chris was, it was pretty quickly on that. I realized, oh, this is, this is a person that I align with in, in so many ways. And the relationship actually went pretty fast. And, and then we were engaged and it'll be four weeks on Friday that we've been married. That's a wonderful shift because I just, like I said, I didn't know. And there's a, I probably won't give it away, but there, there is a part in the book that really helped clarify what is wrong with this idea of soulmate, that it can actually exist, but not in the form that we think of this one in 6 billion person that we have to go on some hunt for, you know, and 
And so fell in love with him and, and he with me. And here we are. I've moved to Cincinnati, living here now, and just having, I mean, God, it's the, the best time of my life. You know, I just, I'm 50 and I, I'm scratching my head every single day thinking, how did this happen? Like, we get to do this. Like, what? You know, this is wonderful, wonderful. So, so on the, you know, tail end of what was the most grievous time of my whole life, love arrived and all these promises came true. And I think it's in part because I worked hard and was able to see them, you know, and then also, I don't know how it all works together, but the divine part of it, that's just like, here, here comes something good for you. I can see the end of this and you're almost there. Keep moving forward you know, and the hard work that you've put in, the honesty that you walked with, you know, in your experience, these things are going to come true for you. It's just a matter of time. So it's time. So keep moving forward. So I did. And now I'm just like, what? What? It's amazing. Your life. I know. I wish people could see your smile right now, because you and I talked a little bit about this on the phone yesterday, that the concept when you are really that precipice of just laying down on the floor and saying, forget it, I give up, which is not the same as maybe being suicidal, but it has that element of it's all cracked open and I can't do this this way anymore. What we're looking for is to be held up by hope, right? Something about that chapter is really hopeful, which is I'm just going to work really hard in the belief that it doesn't always have to feel this way. And and our music, Jessica Kantowitz, who's also another gorgeous writer who's going to be on the podcast, she has a phrase that she uses. I think she puts it on her social media every day, which is it won't always feel this way, which is at the root of the concept of grief. You're not failing when you feel it again. You're just feeling it again. But there will be periods of time where it is your full time job. You do it all day long. And I wish I wish that we had a culture because there are cultures, Western culture is not one of them, but there are cultures who understand that this primary loss that you have been through, this unbelievable untenable loss, if you tell us that this is going to take a year, two years, whatever, you let us know, we understand loss is loss and it's life-changing and your compass shifts and all of those things. But whether or not people make room for it, it is what happens. We got to make our own room. And what we want to be able to do is hold on to the stories of hope that like, yeah, and it's freaking worth it. It's worth it on the other side. So your story is an extraordinary story, Yeah. but also maybe the story that we all, you know, that maybe is available to all of us yeah. at in some form or another, when we're able to show up for our emotions and not, you know, push them into us, but instead push them through us. Yeah. Yeah. Well, here we are. And I'm, I'm glad to be here. I didn't, I didn't think that I could get to this point, but, or that I would again, but, and, and I don't want it to sound Disney and I don't want it to sound like, Oh, it's great. It happened for him. You know, it's like, I worked hard for this and I fully receive it, you know, and yeah, and- it's not Disney, right? I mean, Disney is no. a, I don't know, a whole bunch of chipmunks point you in the right direction. Someone kisses you and that's the end of the world. I just mean happily ever after element is pretty seductive for us, which is bad things. Have, you know, even in the hero's journey, like then, you know, someone comes and saves the day and, and really what's going on in your life is you have moved through 
such an incredible period of pain, you know, it's like the monsoon season, like everyone is going to be incredibly appreciative and notice the warmth and the joy of the sun when you're standing. Well, and, and the truth is, Megan, what that did to me last summer, there is still residual impact with my yeah. level of trust. And Chris and I laid in bed last night talking about that, where he said something about, I hope you can always trust me. And I was like, I'm getting there. <laughs> the, this man that I married, right? Because I developed trust issues over that time. There's residual impact from that, that everything's not just like, yay, everything's wonderful. And, you know, it is wonderful, but there's still that impact of things that I'm still healing up from because of that time. So it's life, man. Life is. Well, but also that's, I mean, again, I'm not trying to put a positive spin on it, but I would say that that's just, you know, again, being hopeful, right? I remember my grandfather one time being like, oh, well, you just save all the money to buy a car before you buy a car. And I was like, pop, that's not the way it works anymore. Like nobody can do that. Cars are too expensive. And And he was sort of frustrated by it. And I was like, I get it. Like you live through a war and, you know, the idea of scarcity is very real for you in a certain way. And I'm not saying it isn't for me. What I am saying is that's not the way I, that's not the way I'm going to live. That's not the way I want to live. It's not the way I have to live. So I don't think adult love is I have everything worked out and we sign the contract of marriage. And it's all going to be fine. I sure. think it's, we hang on to the idea of, I hope that I will be able to show up with integrity and build a relationship with you that only gets better, deeper, wider, you know, more yeah. comprehensive and can hold the complexities. As someone with early childhood trauma, the concept of things like, you know, my husband, if he's 15 minutes late, I have planned his entire funeral in my head what songs we're going to have and, you know, who's going to come visit from another country. I mean, it is deep. He'll walk in and now he knows he's like, Oh God, did you think I was dead? I was like, no, I didn't think you were dead. I feared you were dead. And I planned your whole funeral and it'll just be like, Oh, well, we had a lovely time. Yeah, we exactly. It was a beautiful funeral. The music was amazing, but you know, I don't, I know to not take that out on him now. And he knows to not hate me for that existing. It's not his job to fix it, but it is his job to care about it. And I think that's the stuff, right? Like when you have trust issues, which by the way, is everyone in a relationship, part of what we do is we reveal that. And then we don't, we don't destroy each other for it. We just say, okay, with what you are carrying, how do we move forward in a beautiful relationship? And I just think that that's the hope. The hope is, you know, people get married even when they don't know everything. And people love and are in love and develop relationships and start businesses, not because they know that they won't fail, but because they are not living in fear only that they will fail, Yeah, that there's possibility of all this other. Yeah. And one, one, one being promise for me that I come back to inside myself that always makes me feel good about for our relationship is I will always work. I will always work. Whatever happens, you can bet your ass. I will put my nose to the grindstone and I will work hard on myself, you know, because those trust issues don't belong to him. They're not his to, to work out. I'm glad he knows about them, but they are mine. I'm fully yeah. aware that they are mine. He doesn't have to change a damn thing. No. They're mine. And I absolutely will work on them and move forward. I, I believe that about myself. So that's one of the things that that also brings that hope of, moving forward and knowing that 
if there's one thing that I know how to do, it's how to go after healing, you know, and, and last year was proof of that for me that I'm going to do it come hell or high water. I've done it so far and I'm going to continue to doing it, doing it because I know what's on the other side. And part of that is peace of mind that I can live with myself. And the other part is that I can be there for you. And my greatest purpose in life is to help others, you know, and to be able to stand before them, look in them in the eyes and say, it really can be okay. Again, you really can. You're okay as you are in this space and you will be okay. You know, at at some point, it's just going to take the time it takes to get there. I think that's a gorgeous, you know, probably the most important way to show up for people because anything else sort of borders on pity, like, Oh, I'm so sorry this happened to you, which I think is a reasonable sentence to say, but if you see someone as broken and not okay, it undermines their ability to do the thing that we're talking about, which is, you know, just, you got to believe that somebody can lift and carry the weight. If you don't, you're not helping them. Yeah. So tell, tell our listeners, if they want to know more about you, how to do that. I know that you do coaching, you know, if people fell in love with you as they rightly should through this podcast, what's the best way to know more about your, you know, writing as it's happening, your life as it's happening. How do we stay in touch with Matt Bays? Well, there is Facebook is always great. You know, Facebook, you can look me up on there, Matt Bays, and I'll come right up. Same with Instagram. It's on Instagram. It's under Matt Bays writer and Twitter is too. I don't do a a ton of, of Twittering. And, and then I've, I've started a TikTok. I think it's Matt Bays one, two, three on TikTok, which is just lighthearted and fun little videos. And then there's my website, leatherandlacememoir.com, which it's just sort of static. It's there and there's things yeah. on it. If you want to reach out, contact. And if you need life coaching or interested in that kind of thing or a speaking event or a podcast or whatever, you can reach out to me at, you know, matt.bays at comcast.net and send me an email and we can What about your performing life? Is there anywhere that people can see you singing or performing? Oh my God. So yeah, I'm playing. I buried the lead here. Come on, tell our, tell our folks the most exciting thing you've got. It was in 2019 of December that I did the role of Buddy the Elf in the musical. Buddy Uh, the goddamn elf. Yes. And, and it was like my dream part. Literally, I read the script and I was like, I don't think that there's a part that I've ever been more born for than this because <laughs> I just, like all, all of the, and it's funny. And now after I played the role, all of my friends would be like, that was buddy. And I was like, that shit was there before. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was just like, I'm, I'm excitable in that way. So oh. I get to reprise that role with the Civic Theater in Indianapolis. So I'm going to be doing some traveling back and forth there in the next couple of months. And that will be in December. The last time we did it, there were 18 sold out performances. Yeah. And I think that's just the weight that that musical carries with it, that people just love it. It's love it. the most delightful, fun. And yeah. listen, it's community theater-ish or community yeah. theater on steroids. Yeah. So much of it is professional and India is a hub for artists. And so there's a shit ton of talent and it's just an amazing cast, crew, orchestra, costumes. It's the Broadway touring sets. Like it's a big deal and it's so fun. And I just can't wait. 
I wish I was closer. I mean, I feel like I could probably drive there, but that I, I have seen only stills on your Instagram page and the stills alone, just you like being by are, en- are enough to make me want to throw my kids in the car and get there. Who doesn't love Elf? Don't email me if you hate Elf. I don't want to hear about it. Um, <laughs> I, and those are the kind I make those kinds of comments and then I get those things. People are like, hi, I don't like Elf. And let me tell you why. I don't want to know. Don't, don't email me. I don't yeah. care. I mean, I just could talk to you all day and I, people are going to email me and say, can't you talk to Matt Bays again? And the answer is yes, I will. We will be talking again. He and I are going to yeah. hum around and think about some projects that we can um, maybe do something. Absolutely. With. I just, I'm going to be inspired by this, okay. but you are like a quadruple threat in all the ways. And this has been like a little dream for me. Please folks go get leather and lace you're just not it's available going- only on amazon because uh, it is self-published so on amazon matt based leather and lace and it'll come up along with uh, several crotch novels yes, not exactly. well that happens but, sometimes I the cover do- does not have a shirtless man with a cowboy hat on is all not, it has a gorgeous record i mean the cover's gorgeous um there's crazy? so much there's so much that's fun about the book like it has those qr codes and you can hear music and see um oh, pictures. Yeah, tell them about the qr, QR yeah. codes so so at the top of each chapter is a little like qr code like you're going to a restaurant that says scan me and it gives you the photos with some description that are relevant in each chapter. And I was saying to Matt before we started recording that like, I had a very different image of his, of his sister, a very different picture. It doesn't matter really, except that then it's like when your friend moves and you go to their house. And so then when you're talking to them on the phone, you can picture where they are. It's just like very intimate. And it's such a clever way to get the pictures in books because Anyone who publishes knows that when you put pictures in books, the book becomes much more expensive. So this is just like a totally genius, cool way to interact. But but also the audio book, Matt does all the singing of the songs that are in there. So that is, and who sings with you? Who sings? Oh, all the background vocals. That's all me, honey. Oh, it is. It's no one else. It's just you. Oh, damn it. You're so talented. You're killing me. It was, it was uh, fun to do. The ebook version also has the, the QR codes. Obviously we knew that you weren't going to have another phone handy while you're reading right. it on your phone. But so, so it's, it's a hyperlink that you can just push and it'll go to that. You Technology know. man is so cool. And I have 10 copies of Matt's book, which I will send out to folks. If you just email me, come and put a comment on Apple podcasts that you loved this podcast and you want to hear more from Matt, my team will reach out to you, get your address and we will ship you a book because I love it. And that and is how I anybody feel ever wants me to sign a copy or whatever. I love that shit. So you know what you I, could do? Tatiana Denforth did this for me. She sent me a whole bunch of sticker plates of a signature. So if you send me some sticker plates, we'll do this off air, just your signature. I'll stick them inside the book and it will be like a signed copy from that. I don't even know what a sticker plate is, but no, you just your keep, ass. I'm going to Google it and <laughs> figure it out. It's just a sticker. I mean, Tatiana's have like a design on them, but it's send me a sticker with your name on it. And, you know, poor, poor people who have so many people line up for them in books, bookstores to sign their books. Sometimes their hands break those poor, poor, very popular authors. And so they sometimes have a sticker plate that they'll send the bookstore to stick in a whole bunch of books. You know, they sign them home and 
all those things. So we'll try to figure this out. This is between Matt and I, no one else has to worry about it. You will either get just the book from Matt, but I have 10 copies. So the first 10 people to come onto the website, make a comment on Apple podcasts that you like the podcast. Don't come on and tell me you hate it. What's the point of that? Be good. And or if they do uh, send them my way. Cause I want to make friends with them. I'm- <laughs> I like Matt will have to say to you. Thank you so much for this. You gave me You're so welcome. much of your time. You have given us all so much of your heart. This is really, really beautiful. Hi, everybody. I think it's probably an absurd thing to say that I had a really great time talking to Matt Bayes about grief and loss. But that's the truth. You'll hear it. We laugh. Um, we cry because 